welcome to episode 47 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina and Baden-Württemberg, Germany, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts, I'm Chris Castor-Apple, and with me as always is Collins Mullen. Hey Collins! Hey Chris, what's up? Not much. How was SCG Con? Uh, oh man, SCG Con, I think just like as an idea, it was really awesome. Just the fact that, you know, like going beyond the Invitational, the Invitational was my focus for sure, but just kind of like, you know, having the whole event there, like a bunch of different tournaments with like unique formats. Uh, I really hope that they do that more often. I think that the whole the whole idea was really good and pretty well executed. I, I'm pretty bummed that I missed it, but I'm, I'm glad to hear that it was good. I know a bunch of our friends who were not playing in the Invitational, packed up, and went and had a really good time just playing a lot of Magic. So yeah, I, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, so I made day two of the Invitational, but that morning I was helping Thomas Lee kind of, like, brew up his no-banlist modern deck, and <laughs> I was so jealous. <laughs> he got to play with Death Shadow, which I've been super high on lately, Deathrite Shaman, Treasure Cruise, Gitaxian Probe, Oh, just all these Lord. cards that I was like, I, th- this deck looks beautiful. I just want to do it. It was pretty crazy. And that tournament looked like it was a lot of fun to play in. So Yeah, unfortunately, the results were pretty pretty skewed towards the Eldrazi decks. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at that afterwards and kind of sad and surprised, honestly, to see that that was the deck that was the most busted deck. Because I think that, you know, this this tournament was a pretty good litmus test to see, okay, you know, We've had a lot of really busted strategies over the course of Modern. Which one was Which is the, the king worst. busted yeah. deck? Yeah, the biggest and, defender. Yeah, and it turns out that it's it's Ayavugan. So yeah, the Eldrazi deck took the cake there, I guess. Yeah, pretty definitely kind of strange. I know the the thing that the the thing that stood out to me the most as kind of the most hilarious thing was a fourteenth place uh, Jesse Hefner's deck is just Jund with Deathrite Shamans and one GTA in it. Yeah, yeah. So I guess that that's pretty amazing that just sticking Deathrite Shamans in Jund lets it mostly keep up with yeah. all this insanity, with all these depths decks and, and <laughs> lots and lots of Eldrazi. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, yeah, Death, I think that just kind of proves that Deathrite Shaman is just insanely good. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, it got me thinking about how in some of these decks that would be really, really good with Deathrite Shaman... It might just be worth playing a Noble Hierarch in there, you know? Because a lot of the time, Death Heart Shaman's good because of the the mana that it gives. So, yeah, worth, worth considering, maybe. Maybe, yeah. like, Jund with Noble Hierarch is decently, you know, it, it's, like, close enough to what Death Heart Shaman was. But Maybe. I don't know. It's hard I to mean, tell. turn two Liliana is pretty good. Like, you have to have pretty specific lands, I guess, to do that with, with Noble Hierarch. But if you build your deck for that, uh, who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, not not the best, for sure, but just kind of, like, random thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, as someone who's played a lot of Dominaria Limited lately, boy, the turn one mana elf is a very big difference maker <laughs> in games of Magic the Gathering in general. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I uh, I had a pretty medium day two, uh, so I kind of I snuck into day two at five and three. I played against Jeremy in the last round of day one. We played the seventy five yeah, card beer in standard, <laughs> which was hilarious, and he beat me. But we both kind of like had a very medium day two that put us both out of cash, and yeah, I guess things just kind of like fell apart for us. I'm pretty happy with my deck choices. I think that the black-green Karn deck that I played in Standard was just the best position deck 
at that tournament, which was a nice feeling. Okay, tell me about this deck. Is it kind of like the the one that uh, Brennan DeCandio played in the Classic, or is it a different deck entirely? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that Brennan just played our deck in the Classic um, okay. the next day. Okay. It's, so the idea is that it was just like the black-green mid-range deck. So instead of playing creatures like Winding Constrictor and stuff like that, we just like played a more mid-range strategy and you know played planeswalkers like Karn and Nissa and the Elders Reborn and it went up to Vraska even. So yeah, it looks like Brandon's deck is just pretty much pretty much our deck for sure. So just just built to be quite good against the black red decks like yeah. grind with their planeswalkers and and four and five drops and right. We and, were, yeah. yeah. So the idea is that we were able to go easily over the top of the black red decks. Like if they are trying to grind post board, we're just gonna beat them on that axis. And if they were still trying to go under us, then we could board in such a way where we had like four fatal push. Four Vraska's Contempts, two Cast Downs, you know, Brana Dons, just like a lot of things that like helped us stabilize. Uh, and mm-hmm. then we could just take over the game kind of, you know, by playing bigger stuff. So we found that the matchups against like all of the red decks were really good. And even like the control decks had a really hard time beating us because we had just so much. We're playing like four Atlanta War Elves and four Servant of the Conduits. So like part of the deck is like ramp into big threats, right? So we're playing mm-hmm. turn three Karn a lot of the time. And if we can like dress into turn three Karn against a control deck, that can be pretty backbreaking. Yeah, definitely. So I, I just really liked our plans post board. We just like figured out a pretty good rock build for the standard format. Just because the standard format was so defined, like rock gets really good in that in that defined metagame because you you can configure de- your deck to be favored against everything post board. Yeah, and and it has kind of the, the the defining feature of rock decks, which is the ability to just sort of grind indefinitely and never run out of cards. Because yeah, that, yeah. like like the combo of the eldest reborn and Nissa Nissa minus to get back eldest reborn. That's just and then infinite. If your Nissa dies, you just right. get your Nissa back. Yeah, yeah. And um and we did establish kind of like the loop a couple of times um with Nissa <laughs> and the eldest reborn like against like black red post board when they're trying to grind. There's this cool thing where if you ever saw a Cinder Baron again, uh, out of your Black Red opponent, you knew that you could just like bring in a bunch of like duresses and Argyle's Bloodfasts and stuff post board against them because you knew that they're trying to grind more post board. Yes. And then they're just never beating you uh, if like if they don't try to go under you, right? So yeah, like that's the matchup where you know we would just like play the Elder Born, play Nissa, get it back you know, get back Nissa later. <laughs> it's just really silly. <laughs> yeah, maybe you can find a way to, like, ultimate your Nissa in and amongst this cycle. It's crazy. So, yeah, I'm really happy with that deck, for sure. What did you play in Modern? In Modern, I played uh, Grixis Shadow. I I toyed around with the idea of playing Dredge. I think that it might have been correct to, to play Dredge just because I think that that deck was really well positioned in Modern. Like, the top decks that we were looking at were, like, Mardu and... Jeskai Control and Human still. And Dredge just like has a really good matchup against those decks. The problem that I kind of thought about a lot though was that fundamentally Dredge just is no longer way more powerful than the rest of the modern format. Like it used to be the fact that Dredge could just never lose a game one because what Dredge was doing was just way better than everything else in the format. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you lost percentage points post board 
because they had, you know, they were prepared for it. But now, Dredge in Modern, you kind of, like, have to work for it still a little bit sometimes, where, like, the other decks can just be, like, proactively powerful enough to beat whatever you're doing, either by being a combo deck and killing you that way, or, you know, just being faster than you, or just, you know, being able to disrupt you just enough on their own. So I, I decided not to stick with Dredge, um, even though I think it could have been, like, a really good metagame choice. But I figured that in an Invitational field, especially, and just in general, uh, Modern's just going to be, you know, a wide-open format, and you're not guaranteed to play only against humans, Jeskai and Mardu, you know, there's, like, everything around. So I just kind of decided to stuck, stick with the, you know, generically good deck that I've been playing a lot lately. So, played Shadow there. And I'm glad I did. Uh, I think that, you know, I definitely punted a match or two. Shadows just has this extraordinary ability to just kind of like highlight your mistakes. It just like serves them up to you on a gold bladder. Every time you make a mistake, it's like, yep, this this is this is what you did. And uh, <laughs> this, this is, is how, how it's, it's punishing you, you right now. <laughs> yeah. Even like even it's incredible how playing humans or something like that. I'm sure I made just as many mistakes, but they're not as obvious, right? And and they don't just like show up as obviously as they do when you're playing Shadow. So not to not to be like rubbing it in or anything, but do you remember any of the specific ones that stood out? Yeah, yeah. I was just about to go over one of the like the tiny uh. mistakes that that showed up, and I was able to see where I'm playing against Green Red Eldrazi. And I decide to board out a, a lightning bolt instead of one inquisition. So I, I boarded out one inquis. So the deck has two lightning, two inquisitions, and three lightning bolts. And I decided, I decided to board out one of each because I still kind of wanted an inquisition, just to be able to hit some of the stuff. And bolt is like fine; it can only really hit the mana dorks or whatever. But I think that that was just wrong in a vacuum because your bolt is often hitting the cards that you want to hit off of inquisition, anyways. So mm -hmm. your bolt is just better, right? Like the cards that you're trying to hit off of Inquisition are like they're they're like three mana guys and they're uh, noble hierarch and stuff like that. Everything else is bigger, both bigger than bolt and bigger than Inquisition, right? Like Thoughtmaster's yeah. and Smashers yeah. and everything. So I, I kind of like made that mental error for game two where I boarded out a bolt and, said, and kept in one Inquisition. And then in game two, he just like played a noble hierarch and then i inquisitioned him and bricked because he had like thought not seer or smasher in his hand and just exactly uh, what you were thinking right. about and <laughs> yeah. and like i was even thinking about like that when i drew my hand right so like you know me getting punished was just like a reminder of what i'd already thought through it was like oh this was probably a mistake and then it just like was laid out there for me is like he played a noble hierarch i inquisitioned him and bricked and i was like justice <laughs> <laughs> this is justice so I corrected it for game three, but I, I lost game three anyways. Right. But you know, had I already cost you, had I boarded corrected correctly for the second game, I think I, that I usually win that game, right? So yeah, it's it's pretty crazy how you know clear that mistake was, you know. And I was even thinking about it before it punished me, and then it like just you know happened to punish me. So I was like, okay, yeah. Very clear mistakes. <laughs> Thanks, universe. Yeah, you, you got me. Yeah. Yeah. And the crazy thing is that it felt, and this might be superstitious or whatever, but it felt like the universe was just like really wanted to punish all of the mistakes that I made, which was cool in a little bit because, you know, uh, it just kind of like made them all very clear. 
um, all the mistakes that I made or whatever. So like every time I would make one, it was just like, yep, you're going to get punished. And I would like think about it and I'm like, oh, man, if he draws an untapped land here, I'm going to get so punished for my mistake. And it's just like, yeah, got it. All right, justice. So I could like, but the crazy part is that I could have won all of those had I made the right play, right? So the, the cards were there for me. So I can't, you know, I can't complain about it. It's my fault, you know, and had I like, you know, done the right thing and, and thought about it on time, I could have gotten there. But so, yeah, the cards were all there for me. Getting punished as a way to like cement that mistake in your mind is certainly like it, it is a good thing. But I, I think the invitational is not exactly where you want that to happen. Yeah, 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 of course. But yeah, so so that's kind of um, yep. part of the reason why I am still enjoying playing Shadow so much is that it's just really illustrating all of the things that I'm doing wrong, and that is helping me improve a lot. And sure, it kind of sucks that it, you know the stage that it happened on was the Invitational or whatever, but I'm going to try hard at every tournament that I play in, not just the Invitational, so, you know. Yeah. I think that it's fine. And I mean, you're you're definitely setting yourself up for better magic play in the future, which is almost the best you can hope for most right. of the time. And that's just always the goal, right? You know, it doesn't matter if I'm playing on the Pro Tour or at the Invitational or just like in a, a, a PPTQ or whatever. I'm, you know, I'm always looking for the things that I'm doing wrong and um, uh, how I can improve in the future. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yep. I think Shadow's helping out with that. Then then I, I would say keep doing it, I guess, definitely. Right. So we had some pretty cool results from this SCG con, or, or from the Invitational specifically. Uh, I know Austin Collins top eighting his second Invitational in a row. is That's like huge congratulations to him. That's really awesome. Yeah, dude, Austin Collins is, is, is the GOAT. GOAT in training, maybe, <laughs> but he's the GOAT. Yeah, dude. I, I so I teamed with him at a team open once, and that was after he top eight the invitational. So I knew that he was good, and he top eighted the invitational playing going seven one in modern with shadow, which is you know that's not a deck that you can play poorly. So you just know that right. he's he's insane, right? <laughs> right. And then you know teaming with him at the open that I that I played with him just really showed me very clearly that he's he just has an understanding of this game that not a lot of people do and he's got that learning drive as well and it's just really awesome to see all of his hard work pay off yeah that's awesome cool i'm i was definitely happy to see that i mean i i don't i don't know him myself but it, it's cool to see the young guys doing well and i know that you are friends with him so he's got to be a decent <laughs> dude so yeah yeah and him and ben reagan i think they found the next level affinity deck yeah i i was really into their list yeah so he's playing three ancient stirrings in his affinity list which looking at it now it just seems like such an obviously correct thing to be doing you know ancient stirrings is just a busted magic card you know and it's just another you're like you're allowing yourself to put another threat quote unquote into your deck by doing that which just seems really strong and they're playing two Karn Scion of Urza in the main deck. From the sound of it, you know, I, I never really saw it play out, but listening to both of them talk about it, it sounds like Karn is actually the truth right now in, in Affinity. I think so, yeah. So I, that seems I, really I don't strong. doubt that. And it happens to be a colorless card to Ancient Stirrings for, so that's that's pretty solid. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, whenever you're, you know, if your affinity opponent just, like, dumps their hand and then their payoff is, like, the Ancient Stirrings and then they find a Karn, you're just like, oh, God. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is made. So, yeah, pretty crazy. Uh, really like that list. And uh, I've talked a lot with Ben about it, and he's very high on it. So uh, it's kind of exciting to see. So for all of the affinity players out there, 
definitely definitely give this list a shot i think that you will be happy with it yeah it looks it looks really tight i i'm definitely into this list so before we get into some more content we just want to take a second to thank our patrons so new patron for this week we've got james ogier so thank you so much, uh, and thanks to everybody who comes in and supports us on Patreon. If, if you would like to support us, check us out at patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Um, but of course, the you know podcast is always free. Appreciate all of our listeners. You guys are the best. But you know if you want to throw a dollar or two our way, that is awesome as well. Yeah, for sure. And so we're going to do one of our weekly segments here. We had a pretty positive reception to going over a Keeper Mole question last week. So I think we want to keep this train rolling. This week's Keeper Mole segment, this came from an Ari Lax article on StarCityGames.com. Um, and it, it was kind of the article that made me really want to do this as a recurring segment on the show. Because he, like us, was emphasizing the fact that in a format like Modern, you know, constructed generally, but especially in Modern, making the correct mulligan decision is just a huge, huge part of your win percentage in any given matchup. But one of his examples that he put forward as, hey, this hand looks good, but here's very real reasons that you should never keep this hand. But that caused a little bit of an uproar on Twitter with, with a bunch of people saying, hey, no, this is a bunch of people who who played Hollow One very seriously, including like Oliver Tomiko, said, no, you should always keep this hand. If I could be guaranteed this hand in every game that I played, I would just play Hollow One in every single tournament. So like huge gap between people's evaluations of this hand. But I, I want to, you know, talk this out and see what we think about it. So this is game one with Hollow One, and it's got two lands, Bloodstained Mire, Black Cleave Cliffs. This is just a stock Hollow One list. So two lands, Bloodstained Mire, Black Cleave Cliffs. It's got one Faithless Looting and one Goblin Lore and one Street Wraith and a Bolt and a Bloodcast. So you've got, you know, two of your draw discard cards, including Faithless Looting, which is the best of them. You've got a Street Wraith, You've got a lightning bolt and you've got a blood ghast. Um, and I just want to like give Ari's reasoning for why you should mulligan this hand. And then I want to, you know, talk about what, what we think. So uh, Ari had pretty much categorized hands into a couple of different categories. And his, his big point was kind of that hollow one needs to be very explosive. And if your hand doesn't have hollow one or Gurmag angler to start with, you should think very seriously about mulliganing it. And if it doesn't have Hollow One, Gurmag Angler, or at least a Flame Blade Adept, then it probably isn't going to be aggressive enough for it to be a keep. And his quote is, you know, right after this hand saying why you need to mulligan it is, you need your card filtering effects to set up your threats. You need to cast your threats early enough to be a relevant goldfish clock. You need to not randomly discard the threats you drew with that goblin lore. But then, as I said, you know, Twitter kind of took this hand and said, hey, I would keep this hand 100 out of 100 times. I, I don't know if you've, you know, what, what your thoughts are, but I'll, I'll definitely give my thoughts after we talk about it a little bit. Yeah, so I think that it would be interesting to do the math on this. Uh, unlike your percentage chance with this hand of having a, a hollow one in play by turn two or whatever. Um, yeah. After both of your Faithless Looting and the Street Wraith and the Goblin Lore on turn two, right? I think that it, w that could you could put that through a, a simulator or whatever, and it could spit out a percentage chance of, of having, that, having that on turn two. Mm -hmm. So I think that would be pretty telling. But aside from that, I think that looking at this hand and just 
conceptually understanding why we mulligan. We typically mulligan in order to find those powerful starts that our deck wants, right? So if we look at a seven, and and this is just like in general, like kind of like taking a step back from, from Halloween specifically. When we're looking at a seven and we're looking for particular cards that we want in our opener, for example, with humans, it's like you want a one drop in your opener. That's going to facilitate the explosiveness of your hand, right? Your option, if you don't have one of those, is to either hope you draw into it, you know, say you're on the draw or whatever, uh, you can be like, my hand's good otherwise, but it's missing this one thing. I hope I draw into it. Or you can just ship it all and have another six looks at finding that card, right? So in a way, you can think about taking a mulligan as just having extra looks at finding the cards that you're looking for, right? Mm -hmm. And it's easy to say with humans when you're looking for a one drop, you know, I'm on the draw, my hand doesn't have a one drop. I can, I can either have six looks plus one from a scry, plus one from a draw step, that's eight looks. Eight additional looks at a, a one drop if I'm on the draw, or I can have one look from my draw step for turn, right? So that seems like an obvious decision. So that's why I think it's so clear to mulligan any seven that's not explosive with a one drop, right? If humans. Yeah. Like, you know, ignoring, you know, particular matchups where like maybe Thali is good enough to keep your seven or whatever. But this hollowed one hand is, is, let's let's try to apply that concept to this hollow one hand right so we could mulligan and have those six seven eight looks however you want to look at it at finding one of the powerful cards that we have that we're looking forward to having our opener hollow one gurmag angler something like that so we could we could have our free mulligan seven looks right between our our six and our scry if we're on the play or our six and our scry and our draw step if we're on the draw uh, or we can use the cards in our hand to find those cards, right? So if we take a look mm -hmm. at this hand, we have the Street Wraith, so that's one look. The Faithless Looting, that's two more looks. And the Goblin Lore, that's four more looks, right? Kind so of. So our hand already has built into it another seven looks at the cards that we're looking for. Yeah, although Goblin Lore is a little complicated when the card you're looking for is one that needs to keep in your hand. But it's it's great at finding right. Phoenixes and Bloodgasts, yeah. etc. But I think that that's fine because, you know, if your hand is, if your six card hand, which you're looking for, quote unquote, right, is like a, a hollow one and a, a burning inquiry, right? You're still going to view right. that as having the, the hollow one in your hand, even though you're, you're you know, a slight, you have a slight chance of discarding it, right? So I think that, you know, built into this deck is a percentage chance of discarding these cards. So if we view it as like the, the draw four initially is like, you know, looks at finding that card, and then we're guaranteed to, you know, discard some cards either way. I think that's just, like, fine. It just um, happens in most of your hands, yeah. But I agree, it is, it is more complicated than just strict looks. But I think that it's fine to look at it this way. So, right, so we have the seven looks to find... Seven-ish looks to find the cards that we're looking for by turn two. But on top of those seven looks, we also have two lands, an interactive piece in Bolt, and the Bloodgast that we're guaranteed to discard off of our first Faithless Looting, right? So we're going to have that in play by turn two. So I think that that is the reason why I would keep, just kind of like philosophically, is that mm -hmm. we have built into this hand enough looks that's pretty much equivalent to a mulligan. And on top of that, we have 
lands that we need to play the game, right? Any six that you have that doesn't have the lands is a mulligan. So that's like a percentage chance that you have to mulligan even further, which is a downside of mulliganing. And yeah. we have the the bolt and the blood cast, which are just free value, right? So if you're if you're viewing a mulligan as extra looks at the cards that you want in your hand, then I think that this hand has those already built into it and is the reason why I would keep it. Yeah, I, I think I would keep this too. Um, and and I haven't played very much with Hollow One, but I have it on my list as kind of the first deck that I'm going to... I'm going to start playing quite a bit of Modern over the next couple of days because there's a Magic Online PTQ and, and GP Barcelona is Modern. Uh, so that's what I'm going to be focusing on, and this is kind of the first deck in the queue to see if I can you know get it to a place where I'm comfortable playing it at a big event. This is definitely a hand that I... I think for a couple of reasons, like like number one, yes, you are getting those looks. Part of Ari's ar- argument was you don't want to pay mana to mulligan because you can do it for free. But I think that's a little misleading in a deck that actively wants to cast Faithless Looting. Well, just having cards in your graveyard is a dark ritual towards casting Gurmag Angler or it's putting Phoenixes or Bloodgasts or whatever in your graveyard. So like casting Faithless Looting is so much better than actually mulliganing. And like this hand has two out of the three cards you need for that guaranteed turn one hollow one. Like you've almost got the combo. The Street Wraith plus Faithless Looting that isn't going to discard the hollow one you draw at random. Uh, that's three cards discarded and that's a zero mana hollow one on, on turn one. So you're like pretty close to the best draw that the deck can put out. All you need is for there to be a hollow one in the top three. And maybe there is, maybe there isn't, but it, it's not like you're keeping this hand and it's not an explosive hand. This could be the most explosive hand. And I think with a deck like hollow one, like how much better are your odds? Like what happens if you mulligan to six and like yes now i have a hollow one but i just have the faithless looting and i don't know exactly how i'm gonna get to that i mean maybe i'm just making the hollow one on turn two which is fine but now i don't have other cards that i actively want to discard to this faithless looting Uh, and i don't know what exactly the percentage of sixes are and what they look like on average but like this hand is is pretty close to like it can do an amazing thing and it is set up to do most of what the deck wants to do already. Yeah, for sure. And even if you like don't find the 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 big payoffs that we're looking for, like Hollow One or Gurmag Angler, like if your Faithless Looting draws you into a you know another Bloodgast or a a Flame Blade Adept. Yeah, like, you know, playing him on turn two and then turn three Goblin Loring is, you know, just enough, just as much power as a, a hollow one, right? So I'd be happy to draw mm-hmm. into him and play him on turn two and save the lore for later, right? So yep. there's just like so many cards that we can hit just off of our Street Wraith and Faithless Looting on turn one that, yeah, that I, I think that this is, you know, I'd, I'd be very happy to, to, to do this. Yeah, I think so. I, I think... This might be a case of Ari taking that like, hey, it's modern. You want your opening hand to be doing what your deck is best at doing, like maybe just a step too far. Well, yeah, I mean, I love the concepts that he's talking about, right? You know, yeah, everybody knows that I'm a huge proponent of mulliganing aggressively. I just think that this in per- this hand in particular is he just kind of like trapped himself a little bit by talking about mulliganing with such a complicated you know even just like mathematically such a complicated hand in like the fact that it has all these looting looks and everything you know 
like love the concepts that he's talking about and he makes a lot of excellent points and if you're reading his article i think that you should definitely you know take to heart the things that he's saying but with this hand in particular i think that it's just kind of a bad example of what he's trying to talk about yep i think so the article is excellent though and definitely would encourage anyone who has premium to read it for sure yeah but yeah I think that's that sums up my thoughts on this hand in particular. So should we talk about standard and, you know, sort of things that happened at the Invitational and Classic and I guess at, at GP, Barcel- or GP uh, Copenhagen as well. And then after that, we'll transition on to starting to seriously attack modern because that's what my focus is going to be over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, yeah, I think standard is a pretty good starting point. It's, it's a little weird right now. I... Uh, I feel like I'm looking kind of at two different formats depending on which tournaments I'm looking at. I don't know if you feel the same way. Uh, um, can you explain more about that? You, you feel like you're looking at two yeah, standard formats? I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm looking at two different like ways that the standard format has kind of forked. And oh, I see. One yeah. is like looking at the GPs, like looking at these premier events. Like we're just in this like like mono red, black red kind of hellscape. Just all these <laughs> goblin chain whirlers. Uh, like that's what. GP Birmingham was, that's what the PT was, that's what GP Copenhagen was. We've got uh, another six red decks in the top eight of GP Copenhagen, although one of them didn't even have Chain Whirler in it, which we'll talk about <laughs> for sure. Yeah, definitely. But then but then you look at like uh, the SCG Classics, and the Classic at SCG Con only had three red decks in the top eight. And there were a bunch of very good players in that top eight. Like, it's not like, oh, this is a Classic. This field is is not up to snuff. You know, Brendan DeCandio is in the top eight. Brad Nelson is in the top eight. And there's lots of different decks. There's lots of blue-black decks. Uh, Brendan was playing your, your team's uh, green-black deck. And it, it's just very different. And... And it's not even like, okay, I I think like this premier event meta is more refined or something like that. Because I think that the thing that makes that clearly not true is that if you look at stuff like the mocks, Magic Online tends to be significantly ahead, you know, several days to a week or so ahead of Paper Magic. But if you look at the mocks, there's a decent amount of of mono red and red black decks, but plenty of other stuff. Like, Jeff Cunningham continues to 8-0 these Mox events with Snake <laughs> somehow. And uh, lots of people yeah. playing other, like, blue-black decks and, and things like that. And there's there's just a significant variety. So it's, you know, in these premier events, we're seeing a lot of hyper-distilled, like, one deck with a couple of iterations format. But in other events, we're seeing what looks like a pretty healthy standard. So that's very strange to me. Okay, hot take time. Yeah, Go. I think that a lot of Magic players are getting lazy with their deck selection in Standard recently. Because I think that there are a few different factors of what makes a deck very popular. And what what makes a deck show up a lot in results. One of which is the deck is the best deck quote-unquote right it's just very clear that this deck is better than everything else and people play it because it's the best right Mm -hmm. and that's what we assume is the case all the time i think we just assume that the decks that are showing up in in high density are the best decks that you can be playing and that's why they're up there right but i think that there are more factors that go into it than people might think and one of those factors is the popularity of decks is sometimes due to the fact that it's just the current 
perceived hive mind belief that that's the best deck, right? So I think that another good example of this would be like Jund in Modern. We see Jund in Modern a lot because people just like playing Jund and they believe it to be a good deck, you know, and, and we see Jund a lot even when Jund isn't like particularly well positioned just because there's a high density of people who just want to play Jund. And I think that there's another thing happening in Standard a lot recently where so frequently in the past couple of Standard formats, there has been one very obvious best deck. Teamer Energy, Bant Company, you know, all these things. And all these, all, all, like a lot of the, the the social media has been blasting at the community, just play the best deck in Standard. Standard gets solved, and once Standard is solved, you should just play the best deck, right? And I think that so many people believe that to be such a hardline truth that cannot be changed or whatever, that because they're hearing that, they're just going to queue up whatever they believe the best deck to be is, right? And right now that's very clearly either, you know, it, it's a chain whirler deck. It's either mono red or or black red. But I think that in this particular standard format, I really don't believe that black red is the team or energy or the band company of this format. I think that it's very easily beaten on multiple axes. A lot of people I talked to at the Inventational were like, oh God, I really hope that I'd play against Black Red. And like a lot of players of like high caliber were playing decks outside of Black Red. You know, um, my team played Green Black Midrange or Blue White Control. There were a lot of other teams playing Blue Black Midrange. And I think that a lot of these decks are just easily compete with the Black Red decks, but too many people are too afraid to deviate from the quote-unquote best deck in black red that we continue we are going to continue to see black red everywhere not because it's so clearly better than everything else but because the people who go and play in these tournaments are afraid to try something different and because so frequently in in recent standards has there been a time where it was correct to play the quote-unquote best deck like, I think that playing Teamer Energy is just very clearly, easily the best deck, and you should just be playing it. Bant Company, clearly, easily the best deck, you should just be playing it. And that was kind of, like, hammered into everybody's minds recently, and they just assumed that this is the next iteration of it, because seven of the Pro Tour top eight decks were this black-red deck. So, so yeah, I think that people are just kind of getting lazy, and, and because people are getting lazy, we continue to see black-red decks everywhere. But there are also people who aren't lazy and are trying to beat the best <laughs> decks. And that's probably why we continue to see so many other decks popping up as well. And, and, and some of us are like, whoa, wh where are these coming from? You know? But the reality is that these decks are just fine to, to battle and brawl with, with the rest of the format. And, are, and one of these decks might even just be better than the black-red deck ever was. Honestly, I think that the, the, the green-black Karn mid-range deck that we played is just better than black red and like even even like in this format you know i think it's just it's just like a better option and your win percentage is probably higher if you play the, the the black green deck but people are afraid to 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 do something different right i hope that makes sense yeah i mean it's it's very difficult to brew i and especially against you know somebody could be very lazy and just pick up Wyatt Darby's mono red deck or pick up Owen's black red deck and they have a deck that works like they know yeah, that it right. will work yeah I mean the decks are good for sure right and, and nobody's, it's just nobody's really hard that. To, to put together your own 75 that is as tuned as, as one of these like 
Pro Tour decks. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely, you know, it, it puts kind of av- the average player in a pretty tough spot. And I know I certainly have showed up many times to a tournament that, you know, my deck was while I thought that it was well positioned and pretty decent, like I certainly hadn't put it through the number of reps through the hours of playtime that some of the format stock lists had and I suffered for it. Definitely I've lost games because my my decks just, you know, at the end of the tournament realized that several of the slots should have been completely different cards. So that can be, you know, if you've gotten burned by that before, that can be very scary. And it can just also be difficult, you know, you don't have confidence in in choices. I, I, you know, like I love the look of this green black midrange deck. I wouldn't have come up with it on my own. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and probably a part of that is like getting a little stuck in the mud. Like green black is a snake deck, right? That's it's in standard. If you can make green and black mana, why aren't you playing snake? But then snake necessitates all of these other cards that go with it. And, you know, from, from this deck, you know, you get to cut all the Verderous gear hulks and all the things that go along with Snake and, and play a lot more generically powerful spells. I mean, certainly part of that is like a problem with my like philosophizing about standard and my my making assumptions and that sort of thing. Yeah. And Snake is even a liability these days. You know, all of the yeah. all the Ipnu Deadlands running around and uh the Soulscar mages running around. Like, I think that Snake right now is just really poorly set up against the field. But I think that Black Green is really well set up against the field, you know? Yeah, and honestly, I should have come to that. At Birmingham, I was sideboarding out my Snakes in the Black-Red matchup. Yeah. And that should have been a sign to me. Like, I took it as a sign, like, all right, let's stop playing Snake. Meaning Snake the deck. I I probably should have taken it as a sign, like stop playing Snake the card, but like Thrashing Brontodon is amazing, so let's figure yeah. out a way to keep playing this in a good deck. Right. Uh, and by that I mean not not that Mono Green Stompy is a bad deck, but it's it's not a deck that I'm super likely to pick up for a GP. Eh, it's um, not great. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I played a lot of that deck and I loved it, but but it's not great. Yeah. It's tough to keep up with Glorybringers and stuff with a deck like that. So yeah, uh, and so one other weird thing (laughs) so we're in this red world and we're super focused on goblin chain whirler one of the top eight decks from grand prix copenhagen is just a straight up mono red aggro deck but built very much like an old school like sly deck honestly 20 lands uh three the flame of keld to go with 12 face burn spells yeah kind of similar to Aaron Barrich's list, you know, Aaron Barrich won the Invitational. Uh, his standard deck was a, a super hyper-aggressive mono-red deck. This one kind of takes it to another level with the Flame of Keld. But Aaron Barrich also ran all of the burn spells and a bunch of one-drops. I just want to say that I loved Aaron Barrich's take on mono-red. I think it's it was excellent. just beautiful. I, I certainly uh, prefer this to the the flame of keld list because i don't want to play flame of keld but yeah go on yeah i've I've tried out flame of keld and i definitely considered playing a flame of keld deck at the invitational for a little bit um Mm -hmm. but the card itself is just not really what you want if you ever draw two of them it feels terrible and you kind of have to get lucky on your draw steps after casting the card in order to close out a game a lot of the time because you the only way to sandbag is to have cards under a Bomat Courier. Right, yeah. And is... then you, you don't know what those are either, so you, you also have to get lucky on, you know, peeling that. It's just so hard to sculpt a game plan around. Yeah, and, and we can see that from... So this is Joachim Stell Nilsson's list at the GP. Like, his deck is completely warped around the Flame of Keld. 
in that he has zero Hazarets and he doesn't even run Goblin Chain Whirler in his 75. Uh, so he, he's completely warped around the Flame of Keld and even he only runs three. So yeah, that's that's what kind of card that is. Yeah. I'm sure he also got a lot of equity throughout the tournament by people just uh, assuming that he didn't draw Chain Whirler and boarding out all their X1s anyways if they're, if they're on a deck that does that. I'm sure that yep. had I played against him with, with my green-black deck, that all of my Clint Sleeve Siphoners are going to be out post-board. Yeah, definitely. Against him, you know? To be fair, your Clint Sleeve Siphoners would have been really bad against him anyways. But yeah, I mean, it's probably right. But, but you know, maybe maybe people some made some incorrect choices based on their assumptions. Yeah, you know? or just sequence their cards differently or something. Like, you, you play around Goblin Chain Whirler in some pretty significant ways, and I'm sure that that happened throughout the tournament. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's probably a better point, is that people were just, like, sequencing not non-optimally in order to play around a card that didn't exist, which just makes me happy. I think that if you're if you're willing to make a pull the trigger on making a decision like that to get equity in the tournament, and you do get that equity, it's just you're doing something right. <laughs> it makes Justice, me so happy. Yeah. yeah, definitely. But yeah, I mean, the, the really low-to-the-ground mono-red decks, like his and Aaron Barich's, I... I really loved. Cat Light played a list very similar to Aaron Barich's at the uh, the RPTQ, and she went X1 with it. Just like very easily destroyed a lot of people with this list. And I think that it's just a really strong option right now. Yeah, and her team uh, top eight that top eight at the RPTQ, right? Yes. Yep. Cool. So shout outs to them. Good job, guys. Definitely. But yeah, I these like Lightning Strike Shock Wizards Lightning decks, I, I definitely am into i i would prefer to play a list with hazards and chain whirlers to the flame of keld like i totally get what joachim is going for but and, and clearly it worked out for him and i'm sure that it can work out it's just like a big part of the power of red right now is in those incredible mythic rares and if if you are trimming on them then that's fine because you're focusing all of your power into like making your hazards as good as they can possibly be, which is a strategy that I 100% can get behind. If you're cutting all of the mythic rares completely, and I'm I guess I'm counting Glorybringer as one of the mythic rares, but if you're cutting all of them completely, then you're just sort of like cutting off a big part of what is behind the power level of red in standard. And it's not that that's always wrong. But I, I think you're like closing options to yourself by running a, like a Flame of Keld style deck. I, I think just man, Hazard is so good. Like if, if you're gonna cut on your Mythics, like your payoff is that you still get to run Hazard, and I'm I'm pretty I would be pretty dead set on that sort of thinking for for myself at least. Right, right. Yeah, I mean I uh, I played Mono Red at the RPTQ as well, and just tried to play like a, a pretty lean lean strategy, but. I, I kind of had the opposite, I went the opposite direction in that, you know, I'm playing mono red and playing, playing it as lean as possible, but it's, instead of going like lower on the land count and cutting all the big drops, I went up to 25 lands in the main deck and I played three Hazaret, four Phoenix, two Glorybringer in the main, just truly trying to lean on the powerful mythics to get me there. And, you know, I think that if I would do it again, I honestly, I think I would play Aaron Barich's list just because it was just so nutty, I think. But definitely interesting that you can have, you can kind of go either direction there. Yeah, and I, I think as long as these black-red decks are in a place where, like, a, a, a solid strategy for beating them is grinding them out with the Eldest Reborn and Karn and stuff, 
like they're not going to be able to keep up with you if you have like 12 face burn spells in your deck and you're just ready to fight with your hazarets and i i think this is an excellent way of taking advantage of that and has the added bonus of like being a great bomac courier deck against the control decks yeah yeah for sure yeah uh, you know utilizing bomac courier to its fullest potential is definitely something that you're gonna get equity out of doing like with my deck with the 25 lands and the extra you know four or five drops or whatever i definitely had a couple scenarios where i just like had to lose my bow mat that had four cards under it because i had two four drops in my hand that i figured were just better to have if you're you know if you're configuring your deck in a in a way where that's just never gonna happen then you probably get a lot of equity out of doing so yeah i mean i am a sucker for you know, hyper linearizing your strategy, hyper focusing on on one particular angle of attack, definitely like to a fault. Like a, that has caused me to run decks that were not optimal because I I just wanted all my cards to be all in on one plan, and that that's just very like elegant to me. And this is a very elegant looking deck to me, partly because of my predilection towards that sort of thing. But I do think it is really well positioned right now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, any other thoughts on standard? Nothing too exciting. Yeah, as we were looking at, like, it looks like blue-black is a solid way to contest the format as it exists right now. Even Brad Nelson switched away from blue-white control to play a, you know, a sort of Matignon-esque blue-black list splashing white for Teferi and several other players that did well in the classic. I think there were, yeah, three three blue-black lists, Vrasis Contempt, Torrential Gearhulk lists, uh, some more towards... Mid-range, Brad Nelson on a control deck, but but several of these mid-range decks were also pretty successful. You know, just able to grind pretty hard with Black-Red between Scarab God, Ravenous Chupacabra, Torrential Gearhulk, and, and that's a fine strategy. The, like, Fatal Push, Vraska's Contempt combo right now is a very solid, like, contains most threats that most of the decks can put out against you. So that's a, a decent place to be. Yeah, I agree. Vraska's contempting planeswalkers is actually relevant if people are trying to get them back into play with Eldest Reborn. So that's oh nice yeah, too. definitely yeah. Whenever I played against another black deck and they Vraska's tempted my my Karn or whatever, and I had an Eldest Reborn, I was like, oh, <laughs> so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yep, definitely. So yeah. I, I, you know, last week we were feeling pretty down on this format, and if we just looked at the GP Copenhagen results, I think we would still be feeling the same way but I, I think there's a lot more play here than just those like three premier event results would would have you believe so uh, th- there's a lot there's a lot you can do yeah i agree i think that it's still this format is still in a spot where you can get an edge by doing something other than the you know the quote-unquote best options yeah um, so like we're, we're seeing kind of unexpected stuff pop up and do very well because it was well positioned which is that's part of a healthy format that's one of the things you want yeah yeah absolutely and you know you know the thing i talked about earlier about people just kind of like being afraid to try other stuff still exists but i I hope that more people will try to you know look into the ways of getting an edge on the format in 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 other ways because i think that you know while you're like guaranteed to have like a, a a decent finish if you're a good player and decide to play you know mono red you know, the you're increasing your odds of being able to, like, spike it or something if you try to take advantage of the fact that so many other players are not deviating and playing the mono, the, the red lists. Yeah, if you can beat the safe choice and, like, legitimately beat the safe choice. Like, I don't, I don't think, like, 
all right, I've cut my Bomat Couriers, and I'm running a couple extra removal spells. Like, that doesn't count as poking a hole in the metagame, but... <laughs> yeah, right. If yeah, you I can... mean, you're, you're tuning, which you should always be doing, you know. Right. But, uh, but how many percentage points are you really picking up right, right, by right. doing that? So, yeah, I think that, that kind of covers my thoughts on yep. Standard at the moment. Yep, sounds good to me. So, definitely want to dive into Modern a little bit, and I think... The, the kind of focus that I want to take for a look at Modern right now is where do I start testing for this format? What what should I start looking at first? And then how do I sort of move on from there? I don't want to get stuck in a rut where I just like keep playing a deck and like keep 3 twoing with it and I'm like, this is fine. So I, I, I want to talk about where I'm going to be starting and sort of what what is looking good right now and that sort of thing. As I said, we've got the Magic Online PTQ next week, and then I've got GP Barcelona, so I really want to get down and, and like really get into the modern format right now. And looking at tournament results, you know, we are we are at peak modern right now, I think. There's I I, I just don't think that there is like a metagame like oh humans is everywhere like it is not on on goldfish it is six percent of the metagame and so t- to me this is saying that even more so than at recent times in modern you cannot metagame this format i i don't know if you guys have felt the same way you know if that's been part of the reasoning for for choosing death shadow or or what you've been feeling since you've been playing more modern tournaments than i have um i haven't played against humans in three tournaments um, okay. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think that modern is still modern, and you're likely to play against kind of, you know, whatever people want to be playing in modern. And that's, I think that's just kind of like always true, and we kind of get caught up in certain trends. Like, you know, humans was a huge trend and definitely had a big impact on modern. Chess Guy Control is another trend, definitely recently. But at the end of the day, modern's just always going to be modern. There's just too many cards that are of similar power level. Exactly, yeah. In the sense that, you know, there are so many options on what to play, and and players love options, right? I think that that's why Modern is such a popular format, is that in Standard, it feels like you don't really have many options. That might not be as true as people think it is, but in Modern, people truly believe that they have a lot of f- really fun options to play, and they're going to utilize those options. So... Yeah, I think that you're exactly right in that if you're if you're trying to to like metagame modern and playing a deck specifically because you're trying to get certain matchups, that's just not going to work out for you. You need to be good against the field. Yeah, and and you can certainly adjust. I mean, specifically sideboard cards like that's a huge part. If you're like using your meta predictions to influence your your sideboard choices, like that's a huge part of success at modern. But right now, like good lord i just want to pick a deck that's doing something really really powerful and i i mean that's kind of always my guiding philosophy but right now especially like i want to be proactive and i want to have a deck that's either locked my opponent out or done 20 to them by by turn three or four right yeah absolutely so right now my my plan is to start testing uh with hollow one a little bit and and see I know it hasn't been popping up as much as, you know, it has at one point, but I think it is a pretty powerful, proactive deck, and, I mean, maybe I'll just, like, want to kill myself after a league and a half, (laughs) but, 
it's hard to sequence that deck. But yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it is powerful. Yeah. And, and I think like one of the weird things about it as well is even though it's been around for a while, I think a lot of people still struggle to play against it for whatever reason. Uh, like I've seen people like not realize that they're dead to somebody's blood ghasts in their graveyard or not not realize how much damage the flame blade adept is likely to deal on the next turn and, and also underestimating its ability to just like grind and keep going through lots of wraths and and removal spells so definitely something that i'm interested in in trying out from the other side even though it's it's uh, it's similar to some decks that i've played in the past some all-in sort of uh <laughs> don't yeah, draw your hate cards kind sure. of decks yeah, I mean, like, like, look at these classic results. Top eight is just eight different decks. Jund, Storm, Eldrazi and Taxes, Counters Company, Goryeo's Vengeance, Humans, Hexproof, and Breach. And <laughs> every one of those, except for Jund and Taxes, has a way to just make you dead. Like, v- very, very early on in the game. And Eldrazi and Taxes has a way of locking you out, and Jund, which won... And I just still don't. I I just I I think I'm just never gonna understand Jund in Modern. Probably. I, <laughs> maybe that's where I am permanently. I don't know. Yeah. Um. I mean. Yeah. Jund Jund is just a really really solidly medium deck in Modern. It feels like. Mm-hmm. But uh, shoutouts to Jocelyn Lamberia who won this classic and top forward the last classic that she played in with Jund. Uh, so she's just been on a tear with Jund lately. So maybe yeah, she knows, and, maybe she knows something that we don't. Clearly, she knows what's up. I mean, multiple people who played against her tweeted up that like she played excellently against them. So like, props to her. Clearly, she knows this deck inside and out. And uh, yeah, you know, probably right. probably that is a way to be successful with Jund. Like, if you know every single matchup very well, then this is a deck that you know you can construct your seventy five for the weekend. And you can construct your plays around the cards that your opponent has. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it, Jund is definitely one of the decks that the percentages that you gain are compounded on in this deck in particular by knowing it well and knowing your matchups and everything. Like, that's still true for every deck, I think, in Modern, but less true for, like, something like Burn than it is where it's almost required in order to have success with Jund. Like, you know, mm-hmm. if you if you don't know your matchups and your game plans as well with, like, a proactive deck, then you can still just, like, kind of, like, default to your proactive strategy. But with Jund, you just, like, really have to have that format knowledge and the, the you know, the understanding of how the games are going to play out. Uh, right. It, you, that's just required in order for you to, to have success with this deck. Yeah, even, even though you can get great, you know, pretty aggressive draws with like Thoughtseize into Goyf and then a Bloodbraid Elf and, and you can get your opponent dead pretty quickly. But if you're like playing against Storm and you didn't know what to take with that Thoughtseize and why, then you're just going to lose. So yeah, that format knowledge is is gigantic here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, uh, I mean, Modern's wide open. I, I've been kind of tinkering around with a new Modern deck a little bit on Magic Online recently. And that deck might surprise you. It's, I'm sure it will. It's taking turns. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so tell me tell me what's drawing you to taking turns right now. 
I I just you know I I'm a fan of the the strategies that kind of do something that your opponent doesn't really have much say about, mm-hmm. and I think taking turns just kind of attacks modern at an angle where you you just kind of get to do your own thing and and ignore whatever they're doing, like remand whatever you're playing on turn two, and then play a howling mine, and then cryptic command tapped all your team to make sure I don't die on turn four, and then you're dead if I can resolve. A, uh, you know, a, a time walk on turn five with the Howling Mine at play, right? Yeah, I just think that it's doing something inherently very powerful. And the other thing that I am kind of like digging into with it right now is I don't think that any of the deck lists that exist out there right now are optimal. So part of the fun that I'm having with it is I think that I can come up with a much better seventy-five of this deck. And it might be the case that I like find the optimal seventy five, and it's still just not good enough to to for me to want to play in, in modern. But I think that it's just a fun exercise right now for me to try to tune this deck list in a way that that I like, because there's so many options that you can take with it. Yeah, I'm definitely into that as someone who has recently played a time walk deck to some extent, although I did not did not top eight this GP with it. But yeah, definitely like which which angles are you going? Where do you feel like it's it's been? you know, the, the dead ends have been. Well, so they're, you know, the traditional list is like, you know, you play your, your Howling Mine effects in actual Howling Mine, and there's like the flash one that's one blue blue or whatever. Dictative Crufix, I think it's called. Yeah. So, and then, you know, once you get that online and you're taking extra turns, then each turn that you're taking gets you value, right? Instead of just it being like an explorer of like, you know, okay, now I get to play another land drop and draw another extra card. It's like, okay, I get to draw two extra cards every time I cast this, which can dig me into more stuff. But we're not really sure which card advantage cards, the cards that get you card advantage over time, uh, every turn, uh, mm-hmm. we, you really want to be playing in the stack. And there are a lot of interesting options right now that still need to be explored. Uh, one of the options is an as per told build with uh, Ancestral Visions, where Ancestral Visions is like your payoff card of like, you know, you're taking the extra turns to tick it down or whatever, and then you draw the three at a time, and hopefully that finds you the more gas. There's also okay. Search for Iskanta, which once you flip it, then, you know, if you can flip it and dig and cast a take another turn spell, then you've won the game pretty much, because you, you should be fine with your Azkanta activations. Jace the Mind yes. Sculptor is another payoff card, or just kind of like any Planeswalker. Jace Vryn's Prodigy is another option. So I'm not entirely sure what the optimal way is, and I'm still working on the numbers of like, okay, how many Time Walk effects do we want in order to optimize our balance between Time Walk effects and payoffs, and like card advantage mm-hmm. payoff stuff. Sure. So so that I'm just kind of like enjoying tuning the deck right now and, and trying to optimize it and everything. Because all of the cool. lists that I've seen around right now are just not really what I want. I think that they're all off by, like, eight cards or something. And that's just kind of <laughs> cool to see in a modern format that's so defined. It's just, like, you know, a- another opportunity to, like, you know, try to try to turn this deck into a potentially tier one archetype. If I can tune it right. Well, and one, o- one other avenue for uh, improving on its past results is I don't think that I've seen a single feature match with taking turns where the taking turns pilot didn't punt a game. Oh yeah. And, and part of that is like the, the deck has lots of options and stuff. And other part of it is that, you know, a lot of the players who play it, they're, they're players who have a pet deck and enjoy playing it, but aren't, you know, putting in like, like hundreds of hours of trying to become 
technically perfect magic players um which is totally fine like no no judgment to that but i think the the space of playing you know near perfect taking turns has not really been explored either so you might have have some percentage points to pick up there as well yeah right so i you know i i'm gonna i'm gonna see if i if we if i can build it in such a way that it's you know the list is just more optimized and i'm also learning a lot about the sequencing with the deck and um you know the best the best routes to uh getting getting it to a point where you can you can win so yeah i'm you know i'm enjoying it i think that it's uh it's just kind of like a, the, the fun thing that I'm doing right now. Awesome. Well, if you break it, let me know. And I'll, uh... <laughs> of course. Of course. I'll ship. I'll ship. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Well, we will definitely be talking significantly more about Modern over the next couple of weeks, but got to get to a couple more things before this episode is over. But yeah. So M19 spoilers are coming out uh, yeah. this week, which has been pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, number one, I just want to say that I'm kind of excited to have a core set again. Yeah, I think that part of part of Standard's problem has been not having a place to put like kind of normal generic answers and stuff that we're used to having. Uh, it's difficult to put Doomblade into the format if you want Doomblade in the format and that sort of thing. Uh, and so I, I'm glad that we have a place to to do that, and that should hopefully help us get a you know some healthier standards in the future. But today we are not talking about Doom Blades. We're we're talking about some pretty interesting new printings of cards. We're talking about Demon of Catastrophes. Demon of Catastrophes. <laughs> Two black yeah. black for a six six demon with flying and trample as an additional cost to cast this spell. Sacrifice a creature. This guy looks sweet. He does look kind of sweet. I we don't really have a deck right now with like the disposable creature base that would be interested, but you know, in the past like we've seen several different of these 4 mana 6/6 six, six flying trample demons with weird drawbacks. Like that's a stat line that gets you into standard even if you have like a weird drawback. You know, like a abyssal persecutor was saw weird amounts of play in, in strange decks. What's the one that your opponent can sacrifice a creature to make it not attack that turn? That also saw some play, sideboard play, that sort of thing. So this is definitely like stat line to mana cost ratio is is quite there. But I don't know about decks that have disposable creatures in the way that standard is sort of constructed right now. Right, yeah. Um. It'll be interesting to see if any kind of like shells come out where you're playing... It, like, this kind of reminds me of uh, Emerge a little bit, like the Emerge True. mechanic. And that, you know, that standard format had a lot of, like, value creatures that you just didn't mind sacrificing or whatever. So if there's any, like, weird kind of uh, Elvish Visionary style card that we could play, where it, like, you know, comes into play, gets value, and then we could sack it to the demon. Um, We've I think got Dusk be... Legion Zealot. I mean, that card exists. Yeah, so. right, exactly. So I think that if, you know, if, if that's what we want, then... That could be pretty cool. And Dusk Legion Zealot, honestly, in my mind, standard playable and like per goes perfectly with this guy. Yeah, I, I agree. Very close and very good in Scarab God decks. So this could definitely find a home at some point. I, I wouldn't be super surprised. Next, we got a card that is uh not designed for standard. This is <laughs> Infernal Judgment. This is... <laughs> A yeah. one black mana instant exile target colorless creature. You gain life equal to its power. And there is a, a mechanical hint 
in the art of this card as the demon is squeezing some sort of Eldrazi in his gigantic <laughs> hand. Yeah, yeah. So so that would seem to be what, we, what we're supposed to be pointing this at. Yeah. Definitely seems to be a, uh, a printing of a card uh, angled at helping out the Eternal Formats and balancing them in some way. Uh, that's kind of cool to see, you know, them just being able to slot this in. Kind of sad that it's a rare. Yeah, this is going to be frustrating to open in booster draft. Yeah, yeah. I think I would have liked to see this be printed at uncommon. Being at a rare, just like I wonder. I, I'd love to hear their reasoning for that. If they if they did it as an uncommon, then it's just like you know, it's just fine. It's one of those uncommons that goes last pick in draft a lot of the time. Or maybe I'm just like, you know, we don't know enough about this core set. Maybe they're just like a bunch of colorless creatures in this core set that we don't know about yet. We haven't seen any, I don't think. Uh, right. It, but who knows? Who yeah. knows? It seems more likely that this is just going to be one of those cards that you're going to be so disappointed to open at rare. And I would like to see play design do that less often. Just like the feel bads of opening this at a booster yeah. draft or whatever feels not worth. Yeah, like imagine sitting down to like your first pre-release at getting two of these or getting one as your like promo or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. You're just like, oh god damn it. You know? <laughs> so But as as far as playability goes, this is kind of interesting. Like for modern sideboard cards, you really want overlap, and this kind of gets you there. Like if you want a one-for-one -one removal spell that you can bring in both against Eldrazi decks and against Affinity, like that's kind of a thing. One of the problems is a lot of the decks that have big colorless creatures that you want to kill are also chalice decks, and this is a one-mana spell, so it may just not solve any problems there. So <laughs> Right, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it seems... I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm not really sold on this card yet, and I, uh, I'll be interested to see or hear any sort of like reasoning behind it, but yeah, we're not always privy I mean, to that, unfortunately. It's priced to move. If you hit an Ulamog with it, you're feeling pretty good, I guess. Yeah, but who knows? All right, uh, next is a cool one. This is Goblin Instigator. One in a red for a 1-1 Goblin Rogue. When it enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 red Goblin Creature Token. So this is a card that actually works with Goblin War Chief in Standard a little bit. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, Goblin Instigator, it's kind of like Mog or not, not Mog Phonetic. Mog War Marshal. Mog War Marshal. Uh, yeah. It's like, definitely a worse Mog War Marshal, yeah. But yeah. but Mog War Marshal was is very good in Goblin decks, so... Right. Kind of worse, but not strictly worse. Um, no, not strictly you know, worse. You, this is, you know, you don't have to pay the extra two mana in order to attack with two, two, two one ones on the next turn with this guy. You just get them and then that's it, right? Uh, you know, sometimes Mog War Marshal is worth three one ones, which is nice, but... Yep. Uh, and I mean, like, Dragon Fodder is, has definitely been playable in the past, and this is kind of a strictly better, for, right, for right. Goblins decks at least, Dragon Fodder. So, that's not a bad place to be. We've got Skirk Prospector, we've got uh, Goblin Warchief, and that's, you know, maybe enough to make this good enough. So we probably need a few more ingredients to make a standard Goblins deck, but th this is one of them that's going to be very important. Go goblins that make multiple goblins are in in integral to the deck. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and then next up we have Elvish Rejuvenator. So this guy is a it's a three mana one one two and a green for a elf druid. When Elvish Rejuvenator enters the battlefield, look at the top five cards of your library. You may put a land card from among them onto the battlefield tapped. 
put the rest in the bottom of your library in a random order. Um, so this guy seems really interesting. Kind of like a, a different take on traditional uh, just search your library for a land and put it into play. This guy can hit any land, but it has to be in the top five of your library. Yeah. So when you miss with this guy, it's 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 horrible. But you're not oh, yeah. you're not gonna miss that often. I think in a normal deck you're at like just under ninety percent to hit, but but that means like ten percent of the time you're playing a three mana one one. Right, you almost lose the game when you cast this, because you're counting on that land if this this card is in your deck. Yeah, it feels like it would be a huge detriment to Brick here. Yeah, I see. I Probably he's only going to see play in a deck that needs... that has some sort of synergy with, like, the body and the... like, either the fact that he's an elf is relevant or just, like, the fact that he's a body is relevant in addition to the ramp spell. So I could definitely see him being a good role player in some decks, but... If you're just looking to ramp, I think that you have better options for more consistency. And if you're, you know, if you're just looking for bodies, then, you know, of course, that there's going to be better options than a three mana one one. Right. And I, I definitely don't really see this guy being better than like Gift of Paradise. Because like, you know, if you just want like, hey, ramp and a chump block. Well, this chump block body all of a sudden like makes Goblin Chain Whirler actually do a thing against your ramp deck. And gaining three life is very similar to a chump block anyways so yeah I, I think you're right you need to be doing something like whether you're like bouncing and replaying this multiple times or something like that but you need to be really using that using the body and i i think you know we'll see like certainly this is the type of card that can see play but the fact that sometimes like 10 percent of the time you're gonna spend your third turn doing nothing that's that's a pretty huge drawback and, and a little scary to me yeah agreed but definitely interesting design for sure yeah, yeah. I think they are trying to go this route it, instead of searching when they can, just because the like play pattern of like I'm gonna search my library for this thing, spend the next thirty five seconds shuffling. You need to cut my deck, and just like the game gets gr- grinds to a halt when you tutor for something, and this this wording like keeps that from happening. You're you're making a decision. You're putting the cards on the bottom, and you pass the turn. You know, I I've been pretty vocal in my dislike of the the design of fetch lands. So I like that they are going a different direction with these sorts of things when they can. I I, I appreciate the design for sure. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and then we've got the kind of the new interesting planeswalker, uh, Vivian Reed. It's a green five mana five loyalty planeswalker. So three green green. Uh, the plus one is look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal a creature or land card from among them uh, and put it in your hand. Put the rest on the bottom in a random order. And then minus three of destroy target artifact, enchantment, or creature with flying. And then minus eight, you get an emblem with creatures you control, get plus two, plus two, have vigilance, trample, and indestructible. So kind of continuing with the trend of Planeswalkers and Standard that are just like really loyal. Like instead of having some ability that helps protect them early on, you just play it and plus it and it's just like a six loyalty Planeswalker all of a sudden, which is a lot. And as we've seen from Karn, yeah, it's almost impossible to just kill a six loyalty Planeswalker. Yeah, like Karn's so loyal. And that's like, you know, part of why I like that green black deck so much is that you can just like play it on three and plus it and it just doesn't really matter what's going on. You're pretty sure to have a Karn your next turn unless they like Vraskis Contempted or something. Yeah, and this is 
I I mean, it's, you know, it's a five mana Planeswalker. That's one more than Karn. And, and it's not not incredible in like creature on creature matchups, although that six loyalty means that you're probably getting a couple of cards out of her and some tempo or something. But this is definitely one of those like five mana Planeswalkers that like resolving it against control can really, really put the hurt on them. Like that plus one, if you're a deck that is mostly creatures and lands, and then you have creatures that you want in that matchup, that plus one is really, really powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I think that this will probably end up being like one of those like sideboard bigger strategy cards yeah, where that's how she it's feels like, to me too. you know, you want it in particular matchups that can't pressure it very easily and you want the card advantage. But other than that, I'm, I'm not super impressed with Vivian Reed. I don't think that this card will be like hotly playable in standard too much just because I don't think the abilities are are insanely good for the mana cost. If it was destroy right. any creature, of course that would be a different, you know, different conversation, but destroy creature with flying specifically, not the best. Right. This is definitely the kind of card that you bring in so that you have a huge threat to play after you've convinced them to settle your wreckage. Like this is exactly what you want to do after they cast that card. But I, I agree, it feels mostly like a sideboard card to me. Next up, we've got another option for my new modern deck. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's definitely the most controversial card that's been spoiled so far. But go ahead and tell us what it is. Next to Fate, uh, it's a 7-mana instant, 5-blue-blue. Blue. Take an extra turn after this one. If Nexus of Fate would be put into a graveyard from anywhere... Reveal Nexus of Fate and shuffle it into its owner's library instead. Yeah, so instant speed time walk for for two extra mana, or, or instant speed time warp for two extra mana, and it shuffles yeah. into your library instead of your graveyard. Oh man, time so, walk for two extra mana? Sign me up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Still busted. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, this has a lot of interesting stuff going on i mean just in like your deck the fact that it shuffles in means that over time like the the percentage of your deck that is time walks just goes up so that's kind of nice but Mm. the instant speed thing is also very interesting because this is like one of the most powerful things you could do at the end of your opponent's turn you leave up mana and then they pass if they didn't force you to use mana you know, in something like a control mirror or something, you can like fight over this, and then if they let it through, then you have two turns to try to resolve a planeswalker or whatever. If they counter it, or you know, and you get to start a fight over it, then you started a fight over a card at the end of their turn, which gives you an, a mana advantage going into your own turn. So, like, there's definitely some stuff going on with this card. Is it a possibility for a taking turns deck? Um no not in modern yeah Uh, seven is a lot yeah like we already have uh, a seven mana time walk but it has the option to miracle for two mana and i think that's just gonna be better than the instant speed option uh pretty much most of the time it is worth noting that i have wanted more instant speed options for the modern taking turns deck just because a lot of the time you want to like hold up mana for a counterspell, but then like if they don't do anything important, you can use that on something. Dictative Crucifix, I think, is the best thing right now for that right at the moment, but uh, it's not perfect. 
Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, like a, a, a time walk effect at instant speed is definitely not really one of the things that we want at instant speed. Sure. In something like standard, though, in a very Planeswalker-heavy format, I think that the instant speed on this is very, very interesting. And I mean, this is a pretty perfect setup, but if I can like push through a Nexus of Fate at the end of your turn, then I'm definitely pretty safe to resolve my Teferi on my turn, and then I get an extra Teferi activation, and I get to pass with all of my mana up. You know, or whatever Planeswalker I've resolved. Like, that, I, I end up getting two activations out of the Planeswalker that I cast on my first turn, and then I get to pass with all of my mana up. So that's a really interesting play pattern. And, and you know, in a, like, Haymaker-heavy standard, this could be a thing. Oh, one of um, the... I could see it. Yeah, and it yeah. definitely has interesting implications in, like, control mirrors and stuff. But I'm just not... Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure the play pattern works out exactly how you want it to yeah yeah and and that's definitely something that that remains to be seen i think kind of the main thing about this card though that people are talking about is the fact that this is actually the buy a box promo so you cannot open this in booster packs and it's only available for people who buy boxes from their lgs whoa which, really that's crazy yeah and for me this feels way too close to standard playable and way too close to like, oh shoot, this card does exactly what we need in this deck and we're running four because of that. Like it is seven mana, so maybe that doesn't happen, but it is pretty crazy to me that this is a, a buy a box promo because it is skirting the line of, of standard playability and, and perhaps important standard card. Right, yeah. I mean, for sure remains to be seen on that, but just the the idea that they're having a buy box promo that's not openable in the s actual set feels off to me i'm interested yeah. to hear reasoning for that well they did it last set with i i guess i think it was called like fire song and Sunsinger, but that was clearly a, a commander and brawl oriented card it's okay. like a six mana red white legend that that like triggers when you cast spells so it's you know definitely a, a casual focus card and so that you know they caught some flack for that but it ended up being fine you know Just the, card the is, cards that they were giving out weren't really relevant yeah like it's a cool card for those casual formats so people are going to play it but the demand from like especially spiky players wasn't there i think this one is really dangerous because the demand from spiky players could absolutely be there right for sure and then that'll be a, a little awkward in some context I, I don't know what the difference in supply ends up being i know the numbers are for like the three tiers of, of wizards play network stores like the lowest tier gets 20 of these, the middle tier gets 40, and the top tier gets 60. I don't know what the numbers distribution-wise compared to a regular Mythic, I don't know what that makes, but I, I know like if this becomes an important card of standard, it's probably a, a $30 card. And that's, you know, e even if it's not like highly played, I'm right. not some sort of finance expert, but I, just I think because that's just the, not- uh, Yeah, just because the, the availability isn't really there. It's not like heavily yeah. heavily available, yeah. And also, it it introduces a weird moral dilemma for local game stores that just seems like that's just something that you generally want to avoid. In that, buy box promos cannot be sold by the local game stores. That's like mm -hmm. in in their contract or whatever. That's just not something that they're allowed to do. But when those buy box 
promos become a, a certain value, then I've heard of stores breaking that rule. Because, like, right. you know, remember when Goblin Rattlemaster was in standard and was like $30 or whatever? It was a Buybox promo. And, and store, like, all stores just had, like, you know, stacks of a bunch of them, right? Um, right, because they go unclaimed the, if people don't buy right, exactly, their, and don't buy the boxes. Yeah, and they just like had sacks of a bunch of them that they just like weren't weren't allowed to sell and weren't allowed to kind of do anything with. But it, the reality was that they had a stack of cards that was worth like three hundred bucks or whatever. So that's I don't know. It's just a scenario that I would rather avoid doing from yeah. the from the business perspective of like you know, Watsi printing these things. Maybe I just like have For a pessimistic sure. view of. Some stores are going to be sketchy and do stuff or whatever, but I'm not a huge fan of the incentives that this right. creates. But yeah, but exactly. we'll see what happens. I mean, the card is cool. I wish I could just be happy that this card existed, but that definitely puts a damper on stuff. Yeah, I don't know. it's just weird and different, I guess. And maybe I'm just having a lot of negative reactions because of that. But yeah, we'll see. Maybe it's maybe it's nothing. Our last card is one that I I'm pretty happy to to see. It's a reprint. This is Mentor of the Meek. This is two and a white for a 2-2 human soldier. Whenever another creature with power two or less enters the battlefield under your control, you may pay one if you do draw a card. So this is a pretty sweet replacement for one of the reasons that uh, Oketra's Monument became not really a deck after the like week that it was a deck was that when Shadows rotated out, we lost Bygone Bishop, which was yeah. an important like card advantage engine. Mentor of the Meek plus token producers, especially something like Oketra's Monument, it just can draw you tons of cards and give you so much gas. So if we are ever out of this Chain Whirler world, whether that's through a band <laughs> or through format shifts or whatever, then yeah. I, I'm pretty into brewing around Mentor of the Meek. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those build-around cards that they like printing where that's just going to inspire people to try out new strategies and everything which is always cool but yep. yeah i agree that in order for that to happen they're gonna have to get rid of chain roller yeah when when 40 percent of the field is running four braids and four goblin chain whirlers i i'm not gonna register a catcher's monument that sounds like a nightmare <laughs> yeah that sounds impossible so yeah oh well not great but yeah. yeah uh definitely something that'll be exciting to have in standard for sure yeah yeah, I'm pumped to try this guy out again. Uh, I I don't remember exactly how much play it saw the first time around, but I remember it being a pretty decent sideboard card at least, and that it was just kind of one of those exciting, you know, ooh, I can draw so many cards with this thing, and, and sometimes <laughs> you did. Yeah, definitely. All right, and so that's all the spoilers we've got, so we're going to move on to our Patreon question of the week. Oh, yeah. So this one comes from Karthak. He asks... Building on the mulligan discussion of last week, I have a question about mulligan strategy when you're playing the aggro versus aggro matchup on the draw. And he says uh, game one specifically, but I think this applies to sideboarded games as well. Maybe slightly less towards sideboarded games, but it still applies. As your deck is built to be the aggressor, most of your cards are going to favor that strategy. However, since you're on the draw, you tend to take more of a defensive position early on. Should you be mulliganing normally to still be aggressive, or should you be looking for your removal to match their early threats? Right, he does say specifically game one, but generally when I'm talking about matchup-specific mulligan philosophy, it's pretty difficult 
in tournament magic to know what you're playing against. Or not difficult, I should say, but pretty rare that you know what you're playing against in a game one uh, in tournament magic. So uh, I think I'm going to answer this question more in the concept of post-board a little bit, but I, I, I will try to answer the game one um, question as well. Yes, your deck does have... It's, it's definitely going to be more slanted towards your proactive game plan, particularly game one. But the value of particular cards increases or decreases depending on whether or not you're on the play or the draw, particularly in an aggro mirror. And I'll take the kind of the current standard uh, mono red deck as an example, where the value of your shocks and your abrades and your lightning strikes go up significantly when you're on the draw. And the value of your creatures, like, um, you know, your two-drop creatures, specifically like Karizev and, you know, Scrap Heap Scrounger and, or uh, Earthshaker Kenra, th the value of those go up on the, on the play, right? So when you're evaluating your mulligan decision, all you really need to do in order to adjust is to make sure that you're evaluating the, uh, the value of these cards appropriately based on whether or not you're on the play or the draw. And that's kind of actually something that's always true with cards like, you know, Shock and a, and a Braid and, and Lightning Strike, is that if you if you expect that your opponent is playing two drop creatures, then if you're on the the player of the draw, it, it will just make those cards in your hand line up better or worse against your opponent's two or three drop creatures. Like, if, if I'm on the draw and I have a, a Lightning Strike and the format is full of a very powerful three drop creature, then my lightning strike is gonna be even more valuable, right? And Chain Whirler is a good example of a really powerful three drop creature that exists a lot right now, right? So on the draw, I would say that my braids and my lightning strikes are generally gonna be more powerful. Um, so if I'm, if I'm looking at a hand that's close and I'm on the draw and I have a lightning strike and I expect that my opponent might have a really valuable three drop creature that I wanna kill, I'll be more incentivized to keep it, right? Yep. Definitely. But if we want to take this question a little further and talk about post-board, your, your deck construction is actually what changes a lot on the player of the draw in these aggro versus aggro matchups. If I'm on the draw in the red mirror, I'm more likely to board out my Earthshaker Kenras in favor of more abrades uh, because on the draw, you're going to have the defensive stance and you're going to want to kill your opponent's aggressive dudes. But if I'm in the play, I'm going to board out those abrades again in favor of these Earthshaker Kenras or, you know, other two drops because because that's what I want, right? And and all of that is the your mulligan decisions and your sideboarding decisions all hinge around the similar philosophy of I want these particular cards at this particular time and I'm going to look for them and do what I can in both my sideboarding and my mulligans to optimize the chances of me having these cards in my hand. Yeah, and they're really they're really connected to like the yeah. the mulligan and the the building decision. Like like one of the reasons, you know, the the sideboarding philosophy that I ended up on for Teamer, which was like on the draw take out all of the two drops. Like that came because in my games 2 and 3 when I was looking at opening hands on the draw and like I had a long tusk cub in it, like my hand would look really awful to me because I think like something terrible is going to happen to me when I'm casting this long tusk cub. Like it's going to get Magnus Braid and he's going to play another two drop or he's going to play a Chandra on the play and minus on my cub or plus and harness lightning my cub. Like this cannot go well for me. And so I would be like 
wanting to mulligan my hands that had turn two long tusk cub. And then I realized like, I just need to be taking these out. That that was one of the reasons that I like came to my particular sideboarding strategy was because of my mulligan decisions were just like these cards didn't feel good in my opening hand uh, and and being on the draw like yeah those removal spells especially with the cards that are so good when you're the aggressor when you're attacking cards like Carrie's Ev and, and Earthshaker Kenra and you know for example Longtusk Cub yeah there's a huge difference between having the having uh the initiative and not having the initiative to the quality of those cards and it it, it can be difficult in game ones in particular like it's hard to toss away a seven that's just like hey a couple of good aggressive guys and there's a hazard for later in the game like but but i think you're right like i i agree with the like just adjusting your evaluation of the hand like carries of is a solid seven on the play in an opening hand but on the draw you know maybe closer to a five or a six or something like that does this does this hand like reach the score that i want like obviously this isn't how we evaluate an opening hand but it's it's kind of the idea like this this hand of like bowmet courier into carries of into oncrop crasher like it is a little worse on the draw is it still keepable i mean that one's hard to turn down but definitely if you're missing one of those ingredients then you can get to a point where like yeah i don't think this is going to work out yeah agree so hopefully you know that that hit on some of the the things that that you were wondering about i hope we did a decent job of trying to answer your question but this is definitely one of the one of the really hard things i i I think adjusting your sideboarding and adjusting your mulliganing for play and draw is something that is uh, kind of an advanced level strategy that I I get wrong all the time, but am thinking yeah. about more than I used to, and I think thinking about it is a good first step at least. Oh, for sure. Yeah. If I can give, yeah, I mean, like a next level advice that I think that a lot of people uh, overlook, and just like one of the one of the quick tips for immediately improving at Magic that I've been thinking about is between games two and three reevaluate your sideboard decisions it's mm-hmm. so easy to finish a game two and then just pick up your cards and shuffle them up and present again for game three it's so easy to do and i see so many people do that without thinking about going to sideboarding because they're like oh i'm already sideboarded i'm fine right but if you just pick up your sideboard again between games two and three take a look at it reevaluate think about whether or not you're on the player the draw just you know take 20 seconds to do that in between you know games two and three uh, you're gonna get a lot of equity long term, and I've I've definitely have you know struggled with that because I also had the uh, bad habit of just you know picking up my deck between games two and three and shuffling it and presenting. So if you can you know if you can just take the time to pick up your sideboard in between those two games to reevaluate based on player draw, that's gonna give you the opportunity to think about the things that we're talking about right now, which is okay, now this time I'm on the play, how does that change how I expect the games to play out and what I think that my deck should be configured as? So, yeah, definitely. So yeah, quick tips. Think about think about sideboarding between play and draw. It'll help you out in a lot of concepts that you might overlook. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And I, I've, I've played too many matches where I just like scoot my battlefield into my deck and shuffle up and and it's so easy to do and everybody does it it happens all the time yeah and everybody every time everybody somebody does that they're losing equity so it's just one of the one of the spots that everybody can improve on i'm sure cool 
Well, I think that we have hit on pretty much everything we wanted to talk about today. Uh, I don't know if you got anything, any burning thoughts in your mind? No, I think that we covered it. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much to everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to find us on the internet, you can find our website, mtggrindcast.com. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. I am at, at mtg underscore grindcast, and Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. If you want to support the show, totally optional, but we are working on some rewards. Right now it's mostly the Discord, but we have some some stuff in the pipe that we will be announcing very soon. Exciting, exciting. I know, very exciting. Uh, <laughs> and you can find us on uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Definitely hugely appreciate if you do so, but if you don't, just listening is is pretty damn cool and collins you are still writing for star city games and doing coaching as well so if anybody wants to uh find you for some coaching you want to tell them how to do that yeah i mean you can go on our website mtggrindcast.com and there's going to be a link to the coaching page on there and that'll have all the information you need to see how to get in touch with me about coaching sessions i highly recommend it i think that they are pretty helpful cool yeah That's it for me. Thanks again to everybody for listening and have an awesome week. Peace.